Hello everyone and welcome back to Just Us 3 episode 11. Today we are joined by Rachel Yowds and Charlotte Colombo and we'll be discussing neurodiversity. How are you all? I'm not too bad, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you doing, Hannah and Olivia? Yeah, good, thank you. <laughs> good, thanks. Enjoying the nice weather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had to take sun cream out yesterday, which is obscene in March. Yeah, Never know anything like it. There's been some snow last week as well. Yeah. No, I am, I'm not venture. Well, I have ventured outside, but <laughs> the sun might frazzle me. So I've been a vampire and staying inside. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was a bit like I got like went to study hall, so had to kind of creep out yesterday in the evening, but that was about it. Yeah, we know what you mean. I mean, we've just broken up for Easter, so I think it's nice that the sun's come at this time that we can get out a bit more, go for walks, sit at the park for picnics. So it's been a nice sort of end to the semester for us, I think. Yeah, definitely. So first of all, would Rachel and Charlotte like to introduce themselves, sort of like give us an insight into what you do and sort of explain your conditions, if that's okay? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Charlotte. I'm a magazine journalism student at City, except like I probably do a million other things beside that. I uh, freelance, I work part-time as a staff writer, I volunteer, you know, I spend too much time on Twitter and... <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much me. And uh, yeah, I was diagnosed with autism when I was 10. And, you know, in the last few years, I would say that I've probably started shifting towards like uh, going from it being ashamed of it to, you know, accepting it and then kind of using my platform as a journalist to kind of raise awareness of neurodiversity and some of the issues surrounding it. What about you Rachel? Um, so yeah I'm Rachel, um, I'm a final year history student um, at Liverpool and um, currently <laughs> tearing my hair out of trying to work out what to do next year. Um, um, yeah I um, got diagnosed with uh, Crohn's disease in 2017 so nearly four years ago now um but yeah I think um somewhat similar to Charlotte it's it's taken like a bit of a adjustment to try and sort of it's learning to live with it and learning to adapt with it and going into new environments with it because I got just get your head around having it at a level and then you move to university so it's like you're constantly coming across sort of new challenges and stuff but um but yeah I guess that's all that's going on in my life at the minute really at the minute mainly um dissertation writing and uni work so the next point we wanted to discuss sort of the first sort of discussion point so why shouldn't people jump to conclusions about a particular condition based on what they see on google because obviously as the three of us obviously can't well we obviously we sympathize but we can't empathize with what you both go through but it must be so frustrating that people jump to conclusions based on like a simple Google search when it's so much more than that. So uh, when it comes to autism, the diagnostic model is actually based on male behavior patterns and like women are chronically underdiagnosed. And what that means is the way autism presents in women and girls or you know, non-binary people is a lot different to how it presents in boys. So uh, 
while men are typically kind of known as being kind of out there, a bit quirky, sort of like obsessed with trains and, you know, like mathematical geniuses, for girls, like, um, there's a lot more kind of like masking, a lot more sort of subtle differences. Or masking is when you kind of mimic the symptoms people around you to blend in, you know, uh, there's a lot more sort of subtle differences. They're usually a bit more quiet, a bit more sort of reserved. And yeah, because of that, they're kind of just sort of float through society and nobody really knows any that anything's wrong, but they feel, you know, different and isolated. And, you know, they're labeled as weird or strange or, you know, too quiet, too this and too that. And yeah, so I'd say it's very difficult for girls especially but also in the sense that like uh like in my case especially it's kind of like you don't look autistic you don't seem autistic and I meant to take that as a compliment because it's as if to say uh you hide your symptoms really well and I think that's really impressive but doing that is for me really exhausting and it also again implies that presenting you know as autistic is somehow a bad thing and that I should be grateful that I don't overtly show a lot of my symptoms. That's so interesting what you said about the gender research though with that because mm-hmm. you know you wouldn't think like I didn't know that and I, I had no idea that it was more sort of male focused like that's I found that math that's so baffling. It must must make it so difficult for women to get diagnosed, though, because, of course, like you said, if they're being labelled as weird or different, then maybe even some doctors might label it as that as well, because there's no research to back it up. Yeah, for sure, because, like, I'm obviously, uh, while uh, sort of autism is linked to kind of, like, issues of socialisation with... uh, male males with that condition they're they're still quite a lot more extroverted and because uh women and girls with autism have learned to sort of mimic the behaviors of their peers their body language how they speak again they they usually are very much overlooked and just seen as like a quiet girl and in my case I was probably quite lucky because I only got diagnosed because my brothers also have it and my parents were like just sort of pushing and pushing for it and but like the doctors didn't agree but my parents kept pushing get attested get attested so it was only through their persistence that I got diagnosed as young as I did and most of the girls and women I know who have autism and Asperger's they all got diagnosed you know really really late in life some of them are still seeking diagnoses now because they were constantly overlooked it's such a shame that you know girls are getting overlooked for a condition like if once you're diagnosed it it helps you doesn't it It helps you understand and kind of be able to maneuver a bit more around things and like socialize so you just know your condition more really yeah for sure like um I was very fortunate in the sense that I was able to sort of get a bit of help in basically I was inside this bubble I didn't really know how to speak to people I was kind of floating around in my own little world but you know, through the support and help of kind of, you know, educational psychologists and stuff, I was able to break out of that bubble. Though that being said, like, there are some really, really kind of harmful and 
abusive treatments for autistic people out there like sort of ABA which focuses on kind of trying to stamp out the autism essentially and it's kind of you know akin to conversion therapy but at the same time my treatment luckily was more so about kind of you know accepting and living with your differences and finding a way to kind of communicate the world around you without you know having to stamp out the parts of you that society don't necessarily like. I think that's really admirable that you have that mindset despite everything that you've been through. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, obviously, uh, you know, it was quite difficult when I was at school. I sort of, I struggled to make friends. Um, I just didn't know how to speak to people. I literally... I, even just a conversation with somebody would terrify me. I just sat in my corner with my Jacqueline Wilson books. But now that I've kind of developed this self-awareness and, you know, this understanding of my condition, and most importantly, through stopping being in denial of it and being able to accept more help, that's really helped me come into my own. And I'm really blessed now to have, like, you know, some really good social circle and lots of friends who understand me. Mm, that's so important is the people around you really do impact how enjoyable your life is and how you feel about certain things so it's great that you're surrounded by so many nice people that really understand yeah definitely how about you Rachel how do you feel about people jumping to conclusions based on being on google um, yeah, I think I've just actually realised I didn't actually explain what Crohn's was, so I'll try and um, tie it into this question. Um, so basically, Crohn's is a one of the main types of inflammatory bowel diseases, and um, the other main type is called ulcerative colitis, and it affects the digestive system and the body's ability to digest and absorb food. So um, it's like an overreaction, so it causes like ulceration and inflammation throughout the digestive system, but um, obviously that then presents itself in quite aggressive and um, unpleasant symptoms. Um, so when people Google it, the first thing they say, see is like um, um, linking to like bowel habits and linking to really <laughs> quite gross symptoms, that makes sense. Um, so I hate Google and I hate people jumping to conclusions and thinking that it's basically a disease where all you do is go to the toilet because it's so much more than that. Um, so yeah, whenever I first tell anyone about it, I'm like, please don't Google it. Just like sort of just learn from watching, if that makes sense. Um, cause it's such an individual condition. Um, so I feel like it can't be defined by a symptoms list on Google. Um, and even if my experience is one thing, people will see someone else have it and it'll be an entirely different one. So um, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult, but I think it's really important that people take the time to listen and understand that individual experience with the condition. Um, like I think with anything, it's, you don't want people, you know, Googling things or whatnot about that, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think and having like lived with you and, you know, sort of learned a lot about it, Honestly, I think I've learned all about it through you and not Google. I, I don't, I can't say, I mean, I might have done once when you got, when you were diagnosed, but I've never Googled it since just because it is so different to like the Google description. Like, honestly, it, it yeah, 
like you said, I think it's a very individual thing, but it's been interesting sort of learning through you more about it, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. I think um, that's sort of, I mean, obviously you just, you don't even want the condition in the first place, but the last thing you want is people almost um, perceiving weird things about you because I'm like, I get, I used to not tell anyone I had it because I, I didn't want them to go and find out what it was and then think I was like gross or disgusting. Cause when I was, you know, when you're 17, it's such an awkward age, especially for girls, you know, um, you, your body's going through a lot anyway. And I don't know about you guys, but I just felt really insecure at 17 anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so then to have, um this on top of all the hormonal changes and body changes made me really really insecure about it and I don't know if you remember Hannah but it took about a year for me to get diagnosed because I was so embarrassed to go to the doctors um and I I know a lot I've seen online and stuff that a lot of people who got diagnosed around the same age faced similar difficulties with you know going to the doctors because I think whenever I go, I think the first person I saw um, sent me away with a booklet um, on how to manage stress. Um, and so, and then the second person I saw said it was a fiber deficiency, then it was an iron deficiency. So every time you sent back and it sort of, it makes you doubt yourself a lot, like whether it was, it's actually, you know, you're not just imagining it. Um, and so I think when I got told it was something serious, I think, I don't know about Hannah, but the rest of the family seemed horrified, but I was just so relieved I wasn't like making it up. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it took so long. Like I, I literally remember like the amount of visits you had to go to the doc. Like you literally just had to go to the doctors and kept coming back. And yeah, it was something different every time. So mm. um yeah. Is that do you know, Rach, what the average sort of diagnostic time is for Crohn's or is is that about right, like a year? Um, I don't know the official figure for it, but most people who I've seen come across online, it's it's not been easy and it's taken at least a few months. Um, I don't actually know how much training doctors have on spotting it. Yeah. Um, I read something a few years ago, it said that doctors are just now being trained to spot it um, in young people. Like, I don't know, I don't think they had the training. All they could do is really say, well, I'll send you for a blood test. Then the blood test picks it up. Whereas... Yeah, I think now, or I hope there is, there's like people looking out for earlier symptoms because the earlier you can intervene, the better for the person with the condition. What you've both said there leads nicely onto our next point, which is about the importance of raising awareness of a condition that people might not be able to see. And like you said about individual differences, it's so important that each individual shares their experiences. So I'm just interested to know what you've both done to sort of educate others potentially, or just to raise the awareness that these invisible illnesses need. I mean, uh, what I've kind of found that's important is you've got to sort of, first of all, set your own boundaries, because if you have a condition like uh, autism or Crohn's disease, you shouldn't feel like you have to become that condition spokesperson. You shouldn't have to take on the burden of educating other people like Google's there and you shouldn't have to essentially, you know, be there to kind of 
teach people 24 7 like it can be exhausting and you know like um you might just want to live your own life and yeah especially like so this week is autism awareness week and what I've seen a lot with like other people on the spectrum is that you know they're all saying like uh it's not my responsibility to educate you you need to educate yourselves because the onus responsibility shouldn't really be put on people with those conditions people should be be a bit more proactive about it but that being said I have kind of you know as I said used my platform as a journalist to try and raise awareness like it started actually with autism awareness week back when I was a fresher where I was with a, I was with a student magazine and I kind of pitched my editor the idea of a first ever autism awareness week and you know was involved getting different autistic writers to write about aspects of the condition and kind of help share kind of the importance of you know breaking the stigma and just thinking beyond you know autistic people are rain man across like you know the student body which I think was really useful and for me as well like um in my work as well like um I do write quite a lot about some of you know, the issues autistic people face, like, uh, for example, the stereotypes. So with the recent uh, Sia movie, Music, I wrote an article for the Metro explaining why, you know, casting people, like neurotypical people in autistic roles can be problematic. And again, like um, for, organi- for magazines like The Unwritten, a disability magazine, I spoke about how... Uh, you know the mental health act and the way that's changing is like while it's all well and good it still means you know because the new because the new white paper kind of change changes it so that people who are autistic like before it kind of stated that autistic people can be sectioned solely for being autistic and not many people know that and but and also what they don't know is that there's people who are autistic, who have been kept in these hospitals, these institutions for like decades and nobody's doing anything to help them. And, you know, it's a massive like human rights crisis for ECHR, like for human rights commissioner investigating it. And it's just stuff like that that nobody's really aware of. It's all chronically underreported. And recently as well, there's the do not resuscitate orders and, a big part of that was that do not, with the COVID crisis, do not, do not resuscitate orders were being disproportionately issued to people with learning disabilities. And so that meant that autistic people without their consent were kind of dying needlessly. And again, it's really important to raise awareness of these issues as a reporter, because, you know, a mainstream publications don't talk enough about it and autistic issues are chronically underreported and it's kind of like when they are reported it's by neurotypical reporters who kind of don't really they can't fully like as you said like they can sympathize they can't empathize they can't fully understand you know the gravity and the of what it's like to have a condition like this so it's very important in the media to amplify neurodiverse and autistic voices yeah definitely I think it's so shocking about what you were saying about the resuscitation thing I think 
that's been the most shocking thing in the news that I've seen with regards to people, you know, with learning dif difficulties that, you know, that shouldn't be a thing that everyone has an equal right to life. Um, so yeah, it's really shocking, like, like you say. Yeah, it's really, I think the worst part about it is that it was literally in The Guardian for like a day. Everyone was upset on Twitter. Then the next day, no one cared. And everyone's carried on as normal. And mm. so I was a bit like, okay, so, you know, I could literally die. And no one's talking about that. And it just really confuses and baffles me. And the thing is, this do not resuscitate issue. It's not a new story. You know, organisations and sort of charities have been talking about it for months. And they're literally being on the front page for one day. People will get outraged. People will forget. And then a couple of months later, it'll pop up again. And that cycle will continue. And... Mm -hmm. A day of outrage and a hot take on Twitter isn't really enough. People need to actively campaign and work to, you know, make life better for autistic people. And it sort of goes back to what I said about, you know, autistic people. While it's good for us to kind of, you know, especially for autistic journalists to kind of use our voices to kind of report on issues and, and for the media to amplify our voices, like um, people who are neurotypical should also want to stand with us and make life, you know, better and to, you know, campaign for issues. So, for example, uh, there's a young man called Ozmi Brown and he has autism as well and he faces being deported to Jamaica. And this is after he was arrested and people and he was arrested for shoplifting when the police know that all he did was uh, tell the people he was with to stop shoplifting and they know this but despite that they arrested him and he was put in an institution like lots of young autistic people he was uh, beaten and abused and now they're going to deport him to a country he's never been to without the support of his mum and again like him it's all well and good autistic people talking about this but if we don't have the numbers behind us then stuff isn't going to change and you know Osme Brown will be deported and issues like the DNR will just continue to happen. Yeah I totally agree with that I think that although it's great that autistic people are speaking up and especially autistic journalists it shouldn't be your job to raise all that awareness there should be resources out there already like readily available for people to just access and to for them to be informed and then and as well it's so frustrating with it happens with so many different topics and discussions that they'll have a few days or a few weeks of being spoken about on social media and then they're instantly forgotten about to be brought up again and it must be so frustrating that it's sort of an endless cycle and nothing comes as a result of it yeah definitely like um it does sometimes feel like especially in the context of twitter people like to sort of you know put up, say that they're like these really sort of woke activists and so if like something's trending about dnrs or Osme brown they'll share the link they'll be like i'm so outraged and upset by this but then once they've got their likes and their retweets and their clout they'll just stop after mm -hmm. a day 
and that's not really enough they need to you know keep going Mm. it's all very performative isn't it social media is just there's only so long people go before they stop sharing resources and i i can i can assume it's very frustrating for you to see that especially if it's people you know as well yeah especially i think autism awareness week month like you know that's probably the worst part of it because suddenly you know you have people caring about autism but because they haven't done their research they'll be sharing stuff like uh you know the rainbow puzzle piece which is kind of linked to autism speaks which is an organization that actually abuse autistic people with again as i said like uh, therapeutic methods like aba which actually you know traumatize and you go actively harm autistic people and just stuff kind of like they'll do this very sort of surface level kind of raising awareness stuff but it's not what autistic people want and you know my inbox gets flooded with people asking these very basic questions and it's good they want to learn and I really appreciate that but again at the same time it can be really exhausting having to tell the same person to have to say the same thing time time again no I'm not rain man no I'm not a genius and having to explain stuff to you know people over and over and over again I I sort of feel similar to Charlotte in a sense of um I feel like there is a pressure to discuss these things if you have the condition but it's a pressure I sometimes don't want because um yeah you sometimes think like why should I have to sit here and explain what I go through like it there is like this sort of invisible pressure but I do think it's extremely important to be informative um I have posted about it publicly before and I I think I've tried to do it in like a informative way because um I'm I'm quite a private person anyway so I feel like it feels at the minute it feels uncomfortable to speak about um personal issues quite openly um but I feel like I don't want this association with it either. So I, I was really worried about telling all my friends at university because I was like, I don't want people to think Rachel, oh, Crohn's. Um, and you find it now, people will say like, oh, hi, how are you? Um, and then if they don't know what to say, they'll be like, how's things with your health? How's Crohn's? So it's almost like a default sort of line of conversation. Um, and I just really did not want to be associated with it when I started uni. Um, so it took a long time to, to tell some people, like about a year to tell some people. But by that point, <laughs> sort of in their head that um, it, you know, it's, it, I, that's not all of who I am, if that makes sense. Um, so I think I found it to be a balancing act between raising awareness, but also looking after yourself. Um, but yeah, I, I do think there is this pressure to for when you have it to talk about it but it's something I I don't do that often if I was to speak about it publicly I'd want it to be in an informative and helpful way um because you don't want sympathy or pity for either I think that's one of the worst things um but you do sort of still need support sometimes or you need um people to I know people can't fully understand but um, you want people to show that they are interested and they, they do, you know, want to learn more. Yeah, definitely. I think that leads nicely on to our next point about, you know, how your condition doesn't define you. Because I know you mentioned about, you know, 
I'm not Rachel with Crohn's. So how is how do you find that it doesn't define you? How are you kind of separating yourself from that, Rachel? Um, it's hard because it, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, um, it doesn't define me. When it, it, for me, it's a chronic condition. It's not at the minute. It's not going to go away. Mm. So it is part of me. If that makes sense, it's not. You know, it's not going to go anywhere. And that took a long time to come to terms with. I like resisted it a lot at the start. Um, I just didn't want it. I was like, I never asked for it. I don't didn't do anything to deserve it um it's not fair and all this but then after a few years I was like that line of thinking is not going to get me anywhere so it's it's a hard yes I view it as like a relationship um you know you have to compromise you have to listen to what your body's trying to tell you um but also there are some times when I'm like I'm going to go and do that despite the fact that it makes me ill because you know otherwise I'm not going to really you know enjoy life to the full but um, so I've accepted, I think, that it's part of my identity, if you will. But I do hope that people see more than that as well. I think there's a lot of stigma that you should be ashamed of conditions that you have, but you should never be ashamed of something because you like you said, you can't help that this is a condition that, you know, you now have and that you're you're living with. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, it, it, it is really difficult, but I think um, it's, yeah, I think if you continue to perceive it as a relationship, you know, because whenever, because Crohn's has like remission and flare-ups, so flare-ups when it's active, and then once the disease is no longer active, you go into remission, and even in remission, it's hard, but whenever I come out of it, it it's so difficult to manage because, you know, you finally have gotten to a stable place, and then it's unstable again, so I think it's, what I'm trying to do at the minute is just accept the fact that it's going to be like this for life, probably, you know, it's going to, you're going to have good weeks, bad weeks. And, you know, it's trying, I'm trying to at the minute grapple with how to respond to when it doesn't go the way I want it to. Um, I think that's the thing I'm struggling with, but yeah, um, it is important to, you know, still perceive it as part of yourself, I think, because it is, and otherwise, you know, you'd be in denial, I think. Yeah, for me, like, um, it's very much a factor, as a journalist especially, like, um, a big part of being a journalist is finding your niche and what you kind of, like, a specific topic area you kind of write about a lot. So for me, it can be, there's this this fear that if I write too much about autism, I'll pigeonhole myself and people will come to me as the autistic person when, in actual fact, like... um, you know I have a lot of other stuff to say as well and like um it can be difficult when people kind of again like see you as like a kind of one trick pony and you're just there as like an autistic mouthpiece and not like a fully rounded human being so for me it's just kind of like uh, I accept well, I accept autism as being part of me and I'm more than happy to kind of you know talk about it and you know raise awareness of it but I'm also you know someone who likes memes I'm you know I like to think that you know I'm quite funny you know like uh, I I have a lot of interests out <laughs> interests but like um I do have actual hobbies like am I like running I you know like food and food's not a hobby but you know I'm saying like uh you know I like to do things and you know talk about things and write about things that aren't about 
autism because like obviously uh, I am a multifaceted person and I have um, went and I haven't like uh, you know gone through life you know just to be labeled as the autistic person like I've done all this other stuff as well and you know it'd be cool if people recognized me as that like my friends aren't friends with me because I'm autistic my friends are friends with me because of my other personality traits and not so much what I can but you know it's like um not what I can offer them but like um you know the value I add to their lives isn't related to my autism it's related to who I am as a person yeah definitely I think I can empathize with both of you because um, I'm dyslexic and I think often people like to associate you know they don't understand if they don't understand the condition then they like to just define you with that and it's kind of removing yourself from that like you know I'm not Olivia the person who can't spell you know what I mean there's so it's so much more complicated than that and I think people just kind of take it at face value rather than like just looking at the deeper meaning and that you're not just a spokesperson for it but you know how is your condition you know both of you obviously both students right now how has it impacted your experience as a student well one thing that sort of sticks in my mind a lot like um back when I was in sick form like and I still have this now I had like um you know extra time to text my brain a little bit longer to process stuff because of the way it works and also again because of like I have dyspraxia and because autism affects motor coordination and so I find it really difficult to handwrite and so because of that I also get to sort of type laptops rather than have exams and so because I got good grades um, people in my class would gossip and say that I was cheating because they couldn't understand that someone with learning disabilities is capable of doing well academically if they're given the right support and they thought that my kind of accommodations were a privilege as opposed to being something to equal playing field and to let me reach my potential because before I got you know kind of like stuff to assist stuff to help me with my writing and the extra time I was getting like you know D's E's and U's but when I got that support I was getting like you know sort of A stars A's and B's and I think for a lot of people uh, when it comes to sort of academia they don't understand that the kind of extra support you get is something you genuinely need and it's again as I said it's something not to put you above everyone else but to make you be at the same level as everyone else because you know you could sit there and do a question it takes you sort of 50 minutes it takes me half an hour because of the way my brain processes it and yeah like um another thing I've noticed as well is kind of like people being again shocked that I'm doing well so they're like I can't believe you're able to you know get a degree and get GCSEs and A levels when you have autism and it's kind of like that's kind of insulting because you know just because you're autistic that doesn't mean that you're stupid it just means that stuff takes you a little bit longer like I didn't learn to write until quite later in life and I still now I struggle a lot to handwrite so and if people saw my handwriting I think it'd be done by a five-year-old and yeah it's just about kind of understanding that not everyone's educational experience is the same and just kind of bearing in mind that you know like uh, if people need extra support 
just to be kind of empathetic and to not sort of be like if they're doing well they're automatically cheating like if someone with autism does well then you know it's not a shock it doesn't mean there's something sinister going on it's just like you know it just means that they're finally getting the support they need to thrive which is what every person with a learning disability should be entitled to yeah definitely I am um, I relate to you on that front because me being dyslexic I once I start once I actually got diagnosed my grades went from being very bad to getting a lot better and once I had all the support put in place I started achieving better grades so I really empathize with you on that front with people not understanding how you've suddenly gone from you know struggling because it is a struggle when you have a learning difficulty it's harder and I don't think sometimes people understand and I again like you people were questioning well how come Olivia has been able to move you know from here to here how come she's doing so much better oh you know she's not dyslexic she's faking it she doesn't need the extra time whereas the extra time it's not like I always use my extra time because for the reading sense for me you know I need that time because it just takes me so much longer so I completely empathize with you on that front but what about you Rachel how has it impacted you know you being a student um I think it's it's in different ways I think um because it's even down to like the social experiences of being a student um I got diagnosed um at the start of my final year of A levels so I was ill throughout year 12 and got diagnosed at the start of year 13 so I was actually um, I remember coming home from sixth form sometimes and going straight to hospital and coming back and doing my homework and then going into sixth form the next day and then sitting exams and all this. Um, I don't remember being offered too much support in sixth form because I, I just didn't mention it to many people. Um, when I got to uni, I remember they rang me first and um, had about an hour conversation with one of the support officers and um, we drafted up what's called like a support plan. So there was so many things in place, um, should I need it? And that was really useful. So like I'd have um, extensions on assessments. I'd do my exams in different rooms that were quieter. Um, so, and like, I wouldn't need medical evidence for things cause you know, it's a recurring condition. But um, I think the, the social side was difficult cause it's hard finding the right time to tell people um, or whether you should tell them at all. It's hard having to cancel and change plans all the time. Um, it really affected my attendance in the first and start of the second year. Then when it moved online, it was really strange because I started being able to attend all my classes and my grades went up along with that. Um, so I wouldn't have realized that without um, the pandemic because you know if you were too ill to attend a class, I'd often feel too awkward to tell a teacher I didn't attend so I wouldn't catch up on the work the same um so the pan like being able to attend everything and fully engage in classes has really helped my grades but I didn't actually realize that subtle disadvantage that was at play without me realizing it um but yeah I feel like going to university as well at the start made me aware of the differences I had to other students so um I sort of was just got on with things at A-level. When I went to uni, I sort of realised how different my life was to everyone else's and the things I'd have to think about that other people don't. 
So, you know, like I take injections, they have to be stored in the fridge. So then people look at the fridge and be like, oh, what are they? And it's like, I have a pill box. I don't really know anyone else at uni who has a, like a Monday to Sunday pill box, whatever. Um, and I'd always have to take different tablets at different times. I'd always be going to hospital and doctor's appointments and everyone would always be like, where are you off to? Like, it takes so much time out of your day. So I think it made me aware of my limitations as such, but um, yeah, it was just adjusting. And once I adjusted, it became routine now. I think from what you both said, although they're very different experiences, it all boils down to that people shouldn't question you because obviously, Rachel, you've said that people were questioning, oh, what, what's that in the fridge? Or like, why have you got a pillbox? And Charlotte, people have questioned why you've been given sort of a leg up to be equal to them when you've, you've been at university or at school. So I think it's important for people listening to just sort of think before they go ahead and ask something because you have no idea how that will impact someone. And it's important that you sort of always think before you speak, I think is the takeaway from that really. Yeah, definitely. Just sort of thinking like, is what I'm saying helpful or is it just going to make someone feel bad? Because like, you know, if you haven't got anything nice to say, you don't say anything at all. And if someone like is like going through something and, you know, if, if, if you see like injections in the fridge, like just you know, mind your own business is really the takeaway really I think from that because like if it doesn't impact your life if you see someone like you know having extra time in the exams you have some see somebody using a laptop when else is writing just assume that they've got something going on and just leave them to it like if it doesn't impact you in any way you don't really have to stick your nose in really yeah I was just gonna say that like it's not impacting anybody else so why is there a need to have like thoughts on it and share comments like it's just really unnecessary yeah and I think that the thing is like from what you were saying before um or what you both said about sort of people wanting to be educated I suppose there's kind of the line between people being nosy I imagine and people actually having a sort of genuine sort of um interest in finding out more so like the injections in the fridge I suppose unless you really know what the person's going through and that it yeah, there, sh- there shouldn't re- really be any reason to ask, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't I don't think I mind people asking as such, but it's like, you know, it's, it is, it's, you know, it is visible. You know, there's so many parts of the disease that's invisible. And I imagine Charlotte feels the same a lot of the time because, you know, people say, oh, you don't look sick and all this. And it, I think people are just naturally very curious. But mm-hmm. um, I, you have had people definitely who've, come across and said it in the wrong way as such I think it's just yeah like what Charlotte said like stepping back and thinking is what I'm about to say really gonna how's it how's this person gonna take it kind of thing yeah definitely it's just about using a bit of kind of common sense and uh and I think with everybody like you know chronic condition or autism or not whether someone has a disability or they don't it's just about being nice to people like I just feel like you know if you if you're kind to people they'll be kind back and that's really all there should be to it and yeah it's just like understanding that everyone's educational journey is very much personal individual to them and you know like uh, just everyone has a right to education and we should like if we're going to contribute into a discussion about that we need to make sure 
with doing it in a way that helps them and serves them. So it's like, uh, like what Rachel pointed out about how her grades went up when online classes started. Like, you should at that point be like, why aren't these uh, things in place all the time? You should want to help your friend if they're ableist way uni is set up means that they've been struggling struggling to go to classes and stuff at that point it's okay to be to sort of use your voice to be like why isn't this happening anyway but if it, you're going to say something isn't going to kind of proactively serve them then maybe don't speak but at the same time like don't be someone's savior if they don't ask you to help them don't just do it you know like uh, without asking but like you know if you want to say something or do something, just do, do something that benefits them and makes life better for them. Uh, so maybe as one sort of final point um, of discussion, what's one thing you'd say to people who, who, like us, aren't aware or have no clue what it's really like or how it truly feels to live with a condition that people can't see? And I know we've touched again a bit on that, but what would you what would you say to people and to our listeners? I think um, I'd say that ninety percent of the time you should treat everyone like treat me as well um, as you treat everyone else. Like because you know ninety percent of the time it'll be fine, I'll be normal, I won't want to be treated as someone with Crohn's. But then there is that ten percent of the time where you just need someone to be there and speak honestly about how tough it is. Because I find that if I do struggle, people just come straight away and they say like, they try and offer solutions. Um, when sometimes you just need to sit there and actually acknowledge how tough it is. And, you know, you don't, of course you want solutions and there's there's times for that. But I think it's just like, you know, 90% of the time it'll be fine, but that 10% you do need to sort of lean on people and feel supported and just acknowledge that what you're going through is really tough. Mm. And what about you, Charlotte? What would you what would you say to people? You don't need to treat me like I'm kind of like a zoo animal, like I'm a person. And it's just good to treat people like everyone else because like, you know, just treat me like any, anyone else you see because I'm really just another person. I'm not that different from everyone else. But, you know, again, as Rachel said, like there might be times where, you know, like um, a really like loud environment might kind of you know make me feel a bit uncomfortable or I'm a bit drained so I might cancel plans to kind of recover because if you're masking a lot of the time like um, if you're doing a lot of socializing you can then kind of feel a bit kind of fatigued almost afterwards because you've used up a lot of your energy so just kind of being understanding and of, of like sometimes I might not be up for socializing sometimes I might not want to go to like you know a really loud place you know sometimes I might say the wrong thing and it's not to say don't make excuses for me like if I've done something wrong I want to learn I want to get better but you know like I'm just having it at the back of your mind that you know there I also respond to some situations differently that you might do than you might do and just kind of understanding that really and just, you know, apart from that, just treating me like everyone else because, you know, we're all people. I think that's a great place to end. Um, 
So yeah, thank you so much, Rachel and Charlotte, for joining us today. I know I speak on behalf of the three of us when I say it's been so insightful and we've learned so much from chatting to you and we really hope that our listeners feel the same. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, same. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you've joined us up until this point, we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have and we hope you'll join us next time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.